We had a great Sunday last Sunday, didn't we? Uh, outdoor baptism. How many of you were there? Uh, just had a great time out at uh, White Star Park. 62 people followed Christ in believers' baptism, so we're celebrating with them. Isn't that great? And uh, I think, I know there's been over 170 this year that have, uh, it's just so cool to see God working in people's lives, them taking steps to be more obedient to Jesus. And we're just so excited about that. We're wrapping up a series today. Next week, we start a new series called The Struggle is Real. And every Sunday that we're in The Struggle is Real, it will feature a, a, a life story of somebody in our church family that God has, has overcome, helped them overcome a struggle in their life. And, and that, some of that's going to be a little intense. And because of that, we're actually suspending our live feed. So if you're not here, you're not going to be able to tune in and get that. We won't have live, live feed service on, on Sunday mornings. And then even when we post those sermons a couple of days later, maybe all the content won't be there. Uh, this is just for our church family. So I encourage you, if you know somebody who's, who's just checking out Grace by Live Feed and not used to coming, hey, they should come. And uh, we, we want them to be part of this series. So next Sunday, if they would do that, that'd be great. And as you also know, about a week ago, uh, several of us got back from a trip to Thailand. Uh, Pastor Tim was with us and also Trina England and Isaac Decker and Scott Aldrich. And we had a great time together. We, we have some pictures for you. Oh, we got them right here. Yeah, they met us at the airport as they always do. Uh, just a big celebration, reconnect time. Uh, we were able to go out to the, the orphanages. We have two near Chiang Mai in a place called Doi Saket. Here we gave them chocolate and, and some puzzles. Chocolate wasn't a great idea. It just become a bag of goop because it was, you know, 90 degrees. But here's church. Uh, that some of our kids uh, were, were singing that day and, again, had a great time. Took them to a water park. That was a blast. If you haven't taken 70 kids to a water park, you haven't lived. And uh, we just had a great time doing that. This is how they get around. Uh, in little pickups with these covered things. And uh, after the water park, we actually then took them shopping at a modern mall. We gave them all some money, 500 baht, you know, I don't know, 13 bucks. And, and we gave them some money and, and they spread out. After that, our team then went to the border of Burma and checking out the refugee situation. That was the border and Burma on the other side. And we saw a bunch of people, uh, some of those refugees living on garbage dumps like this here. We actually helped build a school right next to this garbage dump to, to help these kids. And then we toured some of the other schools that were uh, involved in supporting in that area for Burmese refugees. And that's what you see there. There's some of those uh, villages that uh, the refugees live in. And uh, just had a, a wonderful time actually doing all that. Again, another school. And... Uh, uh, just interacting with our team and, and all these kids and in addition to our orphans that we're trying to impact uh, for Christ. Uh, part of that, as we toured different schools, some of those schools we hadn't really been to yet, and this is one of those, and even uh, had an opportunity to interact with the kids, talk to them a little bit, and when appropriate, uh, had the uh, privilege of, of sharing the gospel Although the kids that are in some of these schools, uh, they, they hear the gospel, but sometimes their parents don't. As a matter of fact, um, in one of the larger schools, we went, here's, here's one of them. See all the shoes? That's them going into church. That's what's left after they go in. Here's one of the larger churches. See their parents in the back 
and all the kids in the front had an opportunity. Parents are almost all Buddhists. Uh, was able to share uh, the gospel through an interpreter, and uh, that's the same shot there. The kids in front, they've heard the gospel, the parents in back, and also invited the parents back to hear a guy who could speak in their own language share the gospel a lot better than I could. And so we're, we were doing that. It was just a great trip, and, and I just want to wrap that up by saying thank you. I, I don't know, it was over 10 years ago, I think, that we decided to do the project to build an orphanage in Thailand. Uh, it's northern Thailand, the Hill Tribe kids who were abandoned and uh, weren't even considered Thai citizens, and we not only built one, we just threw the idea out, and the money came in from our church family to do it. We've never had to ask for funds or anything. We not only built one orphanage, we built two, bought land, built two orphanages, then we replaced one with a permanent building, replaced the other one with a permanent building, and it's just gone on from there. We were able to buy them some new equipment and stuff, and would you believe they needed washing machines? You know, they only have like, yeah, anyway, great time. So, uh, Great time doing that. Today, we're, we are wrapping up the series, Making Sense of God, and we're, we're ending with science and God. And, and here's the deal. Here's my driving point. Do not buy into the claim that, that there is this rift or a conflict between science and faith. Don't buy in that there's a conflict between science and belief in God. Or science and Christianity. Because there's not. We know that there are some issues. And we're going to talk about that. But mainly that's within the heart of man. For example, as we talked about once before. Romans 1 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And unrighteousness of men. Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Science is actually a friend of people who believe in God, because science is a great tool to understand more about the universe around us. But we have to know some things, and that is this. Truth about God is suppressed by naturalistic philosophy. Truth, just what Paul said, truth is suppressed, and in our day, it's truth about God is suppressed by naturalistic philosophy. According to the Bible... There is clear evidence for the existence of God all around us, all the time, if we would just stop and think it through. And science is a great tool for understanding some of the things that we see around us, but scientific evidence is always interpreted, scientific evidence, did I throw a, it, it, I don't know, scientific evidence is always interpreted through a philosophical system. And when it comes to scientific evidence, there are basically two philosophical systems, and they are naturalism only, and, and what, what I call, and a friend of mine calls, naturalism plus. Now, let me explain that. Naturalism only, and, and this is where people who refer to themselves as naturalists, and, and this is what atheists would believe. Naturalism only is saying 
that as we look at scientific evidence, no matter what the evidence suggests, we can only give a naturalistic explanation because philosophically we're coming to the table knowing that God does not exist. So even if the evidence points that way, we're not going there. We're coming up with a naturalistic explanation. The other philosophy, naturalism plus, says, hey, we're going to start with naturalistic explanations. We're going to look at nature for normal explanations that happen in our world and our universe. But if the preponderance of evidence points to something beyond nature, we are not going to rule that out. And so it's naturalism plus whatever the evidence might point to beyond nature. It's not naturalism only. It's naturalism plus wherever the evidence leads us. Now, according to naturalism, nothing exists outside of nature. So there can't ever be an explanation that goes beyond that. But naturalism plus says, yeah, it could happen. But here's the thing. It's crucial to understand that the divide is not between science and faith or science and Christianity. The divide, Christianity is not incompatible with science and science is not incompatible with Christianity. The divide is between the two philosophical systems. And here's what we're saying. The theory that there is a God fits the evidence that we see all around us better than the theory that there is no God. We're saying the scientific evidence points to this, not this. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So, by the way, why don't we learn about this in school? Why isn't this ever explained to us? Because if you introduce naturalism plus philosophy into schools, that leads to teaching about God. And we can't have teaching about God in schools, most schools. So that leaves by default only one philosophy to go with. And that is that there has to be a natural explanation for everything that you can't go beyond that. No matter how incredible or how crazy that explanation might seem in face of the evidence. So, problem with naturalism only is that it has major fatal flaws. I'd like to talk about three of them. The three, three fatal flaws, three basic questions that naturalism cannot answer, and they are this. The most basic questions, where did the universe come from? Question number one. Two, how did life arise from non-living matter? First is, where'd matter come from? Then, how did life come from non-living matter? And then third, how did the simple become complex, which is what naturalists believe. But they cannot answer any of these basic questions. They are a major problem for naturalist scientists. Now, a lot of them would say evolution answers the second two, and we'll get to that in a moment, but I want to start with the first question. Where did the universe come from? The, universe, the, the naturalists used to say that the universe was eternal, so they could get rid of that question. They say, well, it didn't come from anywhere, it just always was. And so they believed that for a long time. The problem is with Erwin Hubble, when he built his telescope, then he saw something, a phenomenon called redshift, and then also they started doing other experiments 
on uh, radiation echoes that lasted up until the 90s, and they came to scientific evidence that we know for sure now that the universe had a beginning because we can tell by redshift and radiation echo that the universe is expanding now, so you back that up, it had a beginning. No scientists are arguing this anymore. But this is a huge problem for naturalistic scientists because the problem is, okay, if it had a beginning, what caused it? How did it start? Where did it come from? What's up with that? And they don't have an answer for that. They, they don't have anything to come with that, and it's created an issue. For example, everybody, anybody heard of Carl Sagan? Carl Sagan used to have a TV show back in the day, and he would start his TV show every week with this thing. He, he would say this, the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, all there ever will be. Now, scientifically, we know that is all wrong. That's not correct, what he was saying every week. And, of course, the Bible teaches that God exists eternally, and, we, and, and even by definition, God exists eternally, and he created the universe. We could go back to Genesis, but I want us to see Colossians 1. It says, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that's the way scripture says God did it. That's where it came. Now, as we look at the universe, there's another problem, just not origins. The other problem that naturalistic scientists have come up against is um, looking at the universe as they're saying, wow, life, what we're saying, by the way, is life is best explained by the existence of God, that fits the evidence better than, than no God exists. Now, something happened to me this week on Thursday morning, early hours, dark hours of the morning. Somebody snuck onto my property, got into our two vehicles, which were not locked, and stole a bunch of change and stuff, which I think happened to about 50 people in our county that night. I had left my cell phone in the car and so my cell phone gone so friday morning i go down and i buy a brand new iphone this is an iphone 8 it came out friday friday was the first day the iphone 8 was available so i got the iphone 8 the first day it's available and get this i already know that it will be obsolete in November of this year when they come out with the iPhone 10. Is that not crazy? I have a phone, it's only been available for two days and in two months it will be the old phone because an iPhone 10, which by the way they say will be way better than the eight is coming out then. Anyway, I don't know why I rambled on that, I'm just saying, pity me, you know, it's just, it's kind of frustrating. But, of course, that'll cost a thousand bucks, but whatever. But my point is this, we look, we carry things like cell phones all the time, and increasingly we kind of depend on them, but we really, none of us in this room could disassemble a cell phone into its basic parts and reassemble it probably, maybe. But there are people in the world, obviously, that can do that. But here's the thing, if you see a cell phone, 
and you store information in a cell phone, and you use the cell phone to communicate with other people, nobody thinks that the cell phone just came together randomly. Everybody knows instinctually that there was a designer and a lot of thought and a lot of intelligence went into making this cell phone. Here's my point. When we look at the universe, the universe is billions of times more complex than the cell phone that we're carrying around. Actually, our own hand is more complex than a cell phone, but that's beside the point. The, the universe is billions of times more complex than our cell phone, but the naturalistic answer to the universe is it just randomly happened. And, and that's really kind of crazy. As a matter of fact, a man named Brandon Carter, who's a PhD astrophysicist and cosmetologist, presented a paper to the foremost advanced gathering of astrophysicists and cosmo cosmetologists. No, that's not what I'm saying. You know, he, he got together with them. It was a wild meeting, let me tell you. And he got together and he presented a paper and it was called the Anthropic Principle. And that's where that, that came from. And he basically said, he's just an astrophysicist, PhD, a brilliant guy, but he's saying, people, his peers he's talking to, it happened in Poland. He says, people, you, you got to know that as we look at the universe, there's all these natural laws that are finely tuned. And he starts throwing out things. For example, he says, subatomic particles, strong and weak nuclear force, magnetic radiation, gravity. And basically goes on to list three dozen other things. And here's what he's saying. So you have these 40 things that exist in our, in our universe. And each one of them is finely tuned. It'd be like if you had 40 dials and you could turn them 1 to 100. He's saying, if any one of these dials was 1% off in its tuning, life could not exist in the universe, not the earth. Life couldn't exist in the universe. And so he's pointing out, he's saying, hey, as we look at all these factors we start to realize that the evidence points that there's some designer because the universe seems to be finely tuned in all these areas for one purpose in mind, and that would be us, human beings. And so he presents this paper, and it can't be denied. And so that became a big issue with naturalists because they realized the mathematical odds of all these 40 elements, these natural laws, being so precisely tuned that they allowed life, that the odds were just astronomical. And they realized, as a matter of fact, and I was going to get into these numbers, but I didn't want to take the time. They can estimate the, the number of molecules in our body, in everybody's body, in the earth, in our solar system, and in the whole universe. The odds of all those things coming together and creating a universe where life would be possible is greater than one to the power of all the atoms that we know are in the universe. So I'm just saying to say that even scientists mathematically, they realize there's really no way this happens in a universe that this can all come together this way. The odds are just I couldn't put the zeros to give you the mathematical odds. And so they had to come up with a solution to that because 
it's just fact. So here's what they said. The solution has to be this. There must be billions and billions of universes for this to happen in one universe. So the way they get around those numbers is they say, well, that means there has to be billions of trillions of billions of trillions universes for life to pop up in one of them. That's what the mathematics is telling us. And here's what, and I get their logic in that, and I, get, I know why they're trying to do it. But here's the thing. There's not one shred of evidence that there's another universe. Not one other universe. No evidence. Zero. And when they're saying that their theory is there's, there's billions of trillions of billions of other universes, I get what they're saying, but people, that's not science. There's no evidence. That's philosophy. That's naturalism only saying for this to happen in a naturalistic way, it couldn't happen in one universe. There would have to be billions and billions and billions of universes for the odds to even make sense that that might even happen one time. Do you get what I'm saying? That's not science. And there are many scientific laws. We could, I could literally talk all day about this, and some of you go, yeah, please don't. But I could. Um, just laws. A lot of times we talk about the first and second laws of thermodynamics, both in conflict with naturalism. The second law of thermodynamics is just entropy or the law of your kid's room. It means that you straighten up your child's room, right, and it's like perfect, and then you walk away and you turn your child loose in their room, and then you come back an hour later, and it's a mess. That's entropy. That's a scientific law that things tend to go from order to chaos. Could you imagine someday seeing your kid's room and it's just obliterated mess? And then you tell them, you, they get home from school and you say, first thing, buddy, you go clean your room. You got, you, I want that room clean, spick and span. And they go to the room and then they come back like a minute later and say, dad, you are not going to believe this. My room is perfect and I didn't even clean it. What happened was I left my window open. And you know that storm that came through? Well, the wind came gushing in, and it arranged everything in my room and made my bed and everything just perfectly. And it's perfect, and I didn't even have to do anything. Would you as a parent believe that? No. Why? Because our universe doesn't work that way. Never. Not in one storm, not in a hundred storm storms not in a billion storms is the wind going to come in and put everything perfectly our universe doesn't you get that a kid's room being ordered by chaos would be a billion 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 times more probable than a universe coming together from nothing that's that's what i'm saying the law of entropy has never been proven wrong gives naturalists fits that's just one thing but Colossians, that we looked at a while ago, kind of tells us something. Colossians 1.17. Reminder, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. How can we have a universe with balance and harmony that we see, but also that there is a law of entropy that has never been proven wrong, that everybody believes in? The clock's winding down. Things tend to go from order to... from. Things tend to go from order to chaos unless within the system intelligence and energy is introduced. 
that would be the parent or the child cleaning the room. But unless it's, it's always order to chaos unless intelligence and energy is introduced into the system. So how can we have an orderly universe and the law of entropy? Because God is the intelligence and the energy that holds all things together. That's how. Second question, how did life arise from non-living matter? Bizarre if you think about it. I mean, we, we're so conditioned to it, we sort of take it like, oh yeah, that's, that's what everybody says. But it's, it's nuts. It says this, naturalists say chemicals, they don't want to say how the chemicals got here because they, they have no starting point. But let's say there are chemicals, give them chemicals. Chemicals plus time plus random chance, meaning there's no intelligence directing any of this. Chemicals plus time, random chance equals life. That, that's what we were taught. That's the prime. Anybody here, the primordial soup? You know, what, what was that? Well, we think of, yeah, there's this pond and it, it's scummy. Well, no scum. Scum comes from life. But, you know, there's a, it'd be like a puddle on the moon. So you got a puddle on the moon. And then maybe there's, you know, a volcano and some lightning or whatever. And then, boom, life. And then we all come from that. Cannot, cannot reproduce that in a lab. Cannot, nobody's ever observed anything like that. Cannot show that in any scientific way. It, there's, it's not something, nobody's ever seen that happen. Even though we're trying, we can't make that happen. All I'm saying is, that's not science. That's philosophy. That there had to be only a naturalistic cause for life, even though it doesn't make sense. That's the best naturalistic explanation. Third question, how does simple become complex? Every scientist knows that the more complex an organism is, the more information and the more energy it takes to put that organism together. And so Naturalists just run up with all kinds of problems with this answer. How does the simple become complex? Because for the simple to become complex requires more information. And where does the information come from? And then you have other things like uh, irreducible complexity, meaning, yeah, everything's really complex. And they would say it became complex over time. But the problem with that is it's irreducibly complex, meaning that part, until these systems were fully functional, like most of the systems in our own body, half of a system would not help you. Take the heart. A heart doesn't help you until it's fully functioning and has fully functioning blood and has a fully functioning circulatory system. Okay, so if you just have a heart evolving out of nothing, which is crazy and cannot happen, it would not help the organism until you had a fully functioning beating heart plus blood plus a circulatory system and then a system that benefits from all that. It's all one package. You cannot reduce it down to where it can develop in stages. Even Darwin himself, when, when they were talking about the human eye, he says, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd. And it is. 
Darwin's exactly right on that. The thing is, the more we learn about science, the more it bolsters our view that a creator God fits the evidence better than no God. For example, we've now learned in the last two decades that DNA is incredibly complex. Incredibly complex. There was a time, that's just DNA, even molecules are incredibly complex. There was a time where we thought simple living cells, single-celled animals, you know, that, that they were very simple, that they only had four parts to them, you know, a mouth, a membrane, and somehow they converted that to energy. That is not true. Now, naturalists say, we've got microscopes that are so powerful, we can look at these single-cell creatures, and one naturalist said it this way, it's not like four moving parts, it's like looking at the city of London with all these cars going back and forth with their different jobs, trains coming and going, people walking all over the place. It's that complex. And then, as I said, DNA. DNA is a ton of information. Now, the naturalists will try to throw out, well, sometimes there's mutations in that information. Right, there is. So you have any organism has a stack of papers of information that would be the size of, of the Washington Monument for a human being, for example. That much information, fully typed out encyclopedias, stacked to the height of the Washington Monument. That's the DNA information for a human being. Now, can there be mutations? Yeah. Sometimes in any organism, you can have information, DNA information that is missing, and that'll cause a mutation. Or you can have genetic mutations in the DNA where something is duplicated or scrambled. For example, you can produce a fruit fly with four wings instead of two by scrambling DNA. But the, the DNA for a wing was already there. And by the way, that doesn't help the organism. All mutations hurt the organism. You can see a cow once in a while that, that is birthed with five legs. That doesn't help the cow. That's a liability. But again, that's not new information. That's information that exists scrambled. Evolution is depending on the simple to complex, meaning how are you getting more information that was never there before? We all understand. And, and so then what naturalists do is they'll try to confuse the issue by selective breeding. We all get that you can breed species together and get a more preponderance of a specific characteristic. For, but all that information is already there. For example, you can breed large dogs or you can breed little small dogs. The issue is they are still dogs. They haven't changed species, still breed together if they can. They, they have not changed. But there are genetic limitations on every species. Can't breed a dog the size of a grasshopper can't breed a dog the size of an elephant. There are limitations. But that's not the problem. What evolutions are saying, we're saying you can't breed outside of the species. You can never breed a dog with wings. You can never breed a dog with horns. You can never breed a dog with gills. Why? Because that information is not there in the DNA. Where do you get the information 
to change a species. That would require outside intelligence. The whole life thing. You know, there was a famous naturalist scientist who finally confessed the only way life could have happened on Earth, panspermia is, is the theory, is that it was brought to us from outer space from somewhere else. That's a scientific theory. By the way, does that solve the problem? No, that just bounces the problem to another world. It's nuts. What I'm saying is you can believe that, but it's not based on science. It's based on philosophy. There was no evidence for any change from one species to another species ever in all of our history. Doesn't happen. Now, Darwin said, because a paleontology was just starting and we were just starting to dig up stuff in his lifetime, and he said, hey, if I'm right, the fossil evidence will bear it out because you will uncover millions and millions of transitionary life forms. Okay, well now we've been doing uh, paleontology for over 100 years, and guess what? That has not been borne out. As a matter of fact, we have not found one transitional life form. That, that's why you hear people talking about the missing link. And by the way, it's not the missing link. It's the missing millions of links that it would require to connect the dots from prim primordial soup to human beings or any other species. Non-existent. So Darwin was saying, hey, this happens so gradually that we can't even see it. We'll have to look at the geological record through fossils to be able to see it over those long sections of time. Because those transitionary forms are completely absent in the fossil record, now naturalists have changed. For example, uh, a famous naturalist, Stephen Jay Gould, a Harvard professor, he said, he came up with a new theory to explain this evidence. He says, yeah, the, the transitionary evidence is not there to back Darwin up. So he came up with a, a new theory called punctuated equilibrium. Punctuated equilibrium says that the changes happened so fast that we weren't able to observe them. I want you to see what's going on there. Darwin says these changes happen so slow over so many billions of years, we can't really see it. We're going to have to look at a fossil record where we can look at millions of years to figure that out. And now, Stephen Jay Gould, then, it's been a while, who is a leading scientist in evolution, a Harvard professor, a PhD, he says, no, we don't see any evidence because this happens so fast, my theory is, it happens so fast, there's zero evidence for it. A Harvard scientist saying, oh, my theory's based on this happens so quick, there's no evidence. But what he's saying is there's no evidence. I get why he's saying that, but here's what I'm saying. That's not science. That's Philosophy, that's my point. It's not science. It's philosophy to come up with that. Uh, Hugh Ross, PhD in astrophysics, says it this way. He says, the evidence of a universe designed, initiated, shaped, and sustained exactly as the Bible describes, but by God, continues to mount. See, what he's saying is, the more we learn about science the more it points us to there, there can't be just a naturalistic explanation because it's all too complex. 
And here's the thing. Followers of God, we don't have to be worried about science. Science increases our argument. I love talking with naturalists. Now, here's my advice. When you're talking to naturalists, atheists who believe this, I would stay away from the age of the earth. Because the age of the earth, first of all, not all Christians agree on that. I, I'm a young earth guy, but I also believe that creation was created in a mature way. Adam wasn't a baby. There were trees in the garden day one. And what a mature earth looks like, that, that's a whole other thing in a, in a mature universe. But, so I'm saying, th that's relatively minor. Stick with the bigger issues, the three questions that I just mentioned, because we have an answer for all three questions. Where did the universe come from? A powerful, intelligent God. How did life arise from non-living matter? It, it didn't. It was created by God. How did the com simple become complex? The simple did not com become complex. Just like we can't see that happening now, it never did happen. God created it complex already. What I'm saying is the evidence that there is a God, the theory that there is a God fits the evidence better, the scientific evidence better than the theory that there is no God. I want to close with just one more thing. Uh, this happened 50 years ago this year. I want you to see this.
We could talk all day. And all I'm trying to say is the theory that there is a God who created the universe, the earth, and everything in it fits the scientific evidence better than the theory that there is no God. Let's stand together. I want to remind you, next Sunday, you're not going to want to miss this series, The Struggle is Real. We're going to start off with parenting. That's a big one. We're going to just talk about different areas in our lives where we struggle. We're going to hear some, uh, some stories of people within our church family. It's going to be a great series. Thanks for being here at Grace. See you next Sunday. You're dismissed.